0: The National Archives podcast series, Tracing Merchant Seamen, 1857 to 1918, presented by Janet Dempsey. Right, we're going to look at the records of the Merchant Navy, 1857 to 1918. Anybody who has actually looked at this time period will know how immensely frustrating this is. You can trace your Merchant Navy ancestors right from 1835 right up to 1857, and then it stops. What I hope to achieve today is to show you that it's not impossible to penetrate this black hole in the records. There is a lot of work ongoing here and elsewhere to try and actually remedy the situation. You should be aware, though, that the situation is very different for masters and mates. Masters and mates records were maintained right throughout this period. They form a completely separate series of records, which I'll talk about a bit at the end. But everything I'm going to say to you here today applies equally to masters and mates as well. We could just clarify what records there are and are not. Register General of Shipping and Seamen kept records from 1835 when they were obliged by law to do so. These records are now available online through Find My Past. RGSS ceased to keep records of individuals in 1857. The reason they ceased to keep the records of individuals is they had already by this time tried four or five different methods of record keeping and found all of them to be very, very overbearing and cumbersome. As Masters of Ships had to provide crew lists and agreements for everyone who served on their ship for every voyage, RGSS decided this was enough record-keeping, we're not going to bother with individuals. So the black hole actually starts in 1857. They did actually start to keep records again in 1913. As is the case for a lot of the Merchant Navy records... The records are kept for the benefit of the Royal Navy rather than the Merchant Navy, and 1913 was a bit of a a landmark. The unfortunate thing is the records that they kept for 1913 to 1918 were destroyed in the 1960s. Apparently they were scheduled to be transferred but were destroyed by accident. But records from 1918 to 1941 are available, and they're available online, again, through Find My Past. Records from 1941 to 1972 are available. They're available here, and as you know, if you've done any research into the Merchant Navy, they're available as redacted documents. In the absence of personal records, there are other sources. The top one amongst these has to be the crew lists and agreements, which were kept by the RGSS in place of the personal records. These records number in the hundreds of thousands and are a real goldmine of information. It's only in the last few years that the true worth of these records has really become known to researchers, not just family researchers, but academic researchers. They contain much, much more in- information on an individual than the census records do, and they're there for every voyage, not just once every ten years. There's also the possibility that your ancestor or person you're looking for in this period was awarded a medal, especially the, for the World War I period. Admiralty records. Merchant Navy ships, as you know, serve on Admiralty Seas. It belongs to the Admiralty. So they take an obsessive interest in Merchant Navy activity. Anyone who served in the period and then went on to serve post-1918 will have records that start at that date. And, of course, census. If you have the name of a ship that your ancestor served on, the crew lists, as I say, are a gold mine of information and their survival percentages are excellent. Their survival is almost 100%. The issue with that survival rate is that, as many of you will already know, they're dispersed across a large number of locations. The National Archives agreed to take 10% which are now in BT 98, 99 and 100. We've got 10% from 1861, we've got 10% which are in BT 99 and BT 100. From 1861 it changes slightly. The vast majority are at the Maritime History Archive in Newfoundland. The National Maritime Museum holds years ending in five and a miscellaneous run in the 1890s. And local archives hold about another 8% of these records. The local archives number into the 50s, so generally speaking, these archives only hold a very small, small percentage. Typically, BT-99, BT-100, The details are spread across two pages. The first page gives us the name of the person, his age, his place of birth, his home address, the date and name of his last ship, which means that you can keep travelling backwards through the crew lists and agreements and build up a picture of his whole career, and the date and place that he signed that agreement. The second page gives us capacity, or how he was employed on board, A certificate number, if a certificate is required. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. The time and date the agreement was signed. The wages that he's agreed to. The date and place and cause of discharge. Any wages that he's owed on his discharge. The signature of the man himself and the initials of the master of the vessel. So as I've said, the crew lists are invaluable if you have the name of a ship. Absolutely masses of information in there but what if you don't and this is what a lot of projects ongoing now are actually addressing there's a lot of work going on here and elsewhere there is the bt99 1881 and 1891 project. and what we've actually done here over the course of the last few years is we've taken the crew list and agreement For every crew list and agreement we have here for 1881 and 1891, this is the list for the the Northumberland. And what you can actually see now on the catalogue is every single person who's named on that crew list and agreement is rank rating, is age, place of birth, his previous ship. And we've listed every person on there. So if you know an ancestor (coughs) was actually serving across either of those census years you can actually just go in now and search for them by name on the catalogue restricting that search to BT 99. There's a very very nice lady in charge over in Newfoundland called Valerie Burton who contacted me to say how impressed she was with what we'd done with the 1881 project. So impressed in fact that they are doing exactly the same So, the 10% of the records that we have for 1881, they have about 80% of the rest. So, if you don't find him on our 1881 database, go on to the Maritime History Archive and search for him by name there. So, 1881 now has about 90% coverage, 90 to 92% coverage, if your ancestor was serving at that period. I think that uh, Maritime History Archive are actually going to follow us into the 1891 as well. You can search by ship's name, you can search by ship's number and you can search by the name of an individual. The crew list and index project, what the, these people are doing is they're going around every, uh, every one of the 50 odd archives in the country who have crew list and agreements and they are listing all of them. But they're doing the whole period from 1861 to 1913 and as they collate the data, they're actually making it available to Find My Past, which you can search free here in the reading rooms. OK, the 1915 project, what is it? It's actually a collaborative project between TNA and the National Maritime Museum. As you will know from what I said earlier, there are no records for mariners who served in World War I. There's no comprehensive list. Not every mariner who served during World War I was entitled to a medal, so we can't even use the medal indexes to, to compile a list of names. So what we did, we got together with the National Maritime Museum, who hold about 87-88% of the records for 1915, and we hold the rest. There are no more in any other archive in this country or anywhere else and we thought it would be a jolly good idea if we catalogued everything they hold and everything we hold, so we've at least got a snapshot of one year of the First World War. What we will do is we will create a database of about one and a half million names. Some of those names will be duplicated, as people obviously did multiple voyages within that year. The project is entirely volunteers. There's Three of us working here part time on it. There are three people working over at the National Maritime Museum as well as their their full time jobs. The rest of it is all volunteers working from home. The other way to find out about an ancestor and what ship he may have served on are medals. If they did serve during World War One, there's a possibility, there's a very (coughs) strong possibility if they were serving across a big enough period of time, that they had been awarded medals. The British War Medal and Mercantile Marine Medal Cards in BT351 have now been put online. They were available here on microfiche, which meant that only one person at any time could access that particular fiche, but they're now available through our website on documents online. The Mercantile Marine Reserve, who largely worked alongside the Royal Navy... Their medals were awarded by the Admiralty, and their records are in ADM one seven one, which are available through Ancestry and also available through Documents Online on our website. Are the records of the Silver War Badge in MT nine? The Silver War Badge, as you're probably all aware, was awarded to those who were no longer fit to serve. Okay, typically this is what the BT three five one looks like this James Dempsey is absolutely no relation to me or to anyone I know it just seemed a very good name to search on what they will they don't actually give you names of ships usually I say usually but there is an exception but what they will do is they'll give you the name the place of birth the year of birth they'll give you a discharge a number so if he's gone on to serve after the first world war that will help you find those records The RS2 number is this ID issue, which relates to the CR10 cards in BT350. And it will tell you the dates that the Mercantile Marine Medal and Ribbons were issued and the British War Medal. Sometimes they will give you the Mercantile Marine Office where these were issued. This is this MMO you see down the side, okay? Generally, it will say something like Southampton or Liverpool or um, one of the other big ports. But sometimes, as you see in this case, it actually gives you a home address. If he's serving on a ship at the time his medal is awarded, it will actually give you the name of a ship. But that's much rarer. We also have filmed the back of these cards, and sometimes you'll get a little bit of additional information on the back of the cards as well. ADM 171 very often do give you the name of the ship and they are a really good route into the crew lists and agreements. Again, like most Admiralty stuff, they can be quite heavily abbreviated but it basically it will give you the name, it gives you how they're employed, it will give you the name of the ship and then in these columns here, it will t- in the middle of, of the page, it will tell you the medals that they were awarded. ST is Star, V is Victory, B is British War Medals. And the next column actually tells you who it's been awarded to. So if it's S itself, it's Father, F for Father, M for Mother, B for Brother, um, double S is Sister, du- Double W is Widow. But as I say, the most useful information on there is the fact it does give you the name of the ship. The MT-9s are brilliant. If you've got a Merchant Navy ancestor who served during the First World War, the best thing you can hope for is he was disabled. Please let Grandad have fallen overboard and got really badly injured because it gives you masses of information. It gives you his name, it gives you his rating, it gives you the ship, but it also gives you the cause of the incapacity. And if we have a look at the bottom for... Mr. G.N. Thomas, second mate of the Anglia, he has a fracture of his right thigh, injury to his right knee, fracture of the foot, and it's caused by being struck by wreckage while in the water after the vessel struck a mine. Loads of information there, and certainly enough information to go into the Admiralty War Histories. Then in ADM 137, and they're searchable using the indexes in ADM 12. The ADM 137 are gradually being catalogued, but it is a slow process. If you do search on the catalogue and you don't find anything, don't assume it doesn't exist. Go back through the indexes in ADM 12. OK, if, if your ancestors did serve post-1918, BT 348, 349, 350, as I've said, now all available through Find My Past. Okay, and typically your VT350 Siemens record cards, if you do happen to find one, will include a photograph. They are records of issue of ID, and the Merchant Service was the earliest organisation to use photo ID. If you're on an oil tanker crossing the North Atlantic post-World War I, you really don't want a German spy on the board. Do you? You've actually got photo ID to identify the seaman is who he says he is. This is actually the card for Frederick Fleet. Fred served during the First World War, and he served much earlier. Fred's biggest adventure at sea was aboard Titanic. This is the chap who was actually in the crow's nest and rung the bridge to warn them that there was an iceberg ahead. He did actually go on to serve during the Second World War as well, and he died in January 1965. So his records would go on and on through all the record series that we have here. Okay, just a word on masters and mates. As I've said, there is everything I've said to you up to now applies equally to masters and mates. But additionally, masters and mates and engineers and cooks all needed certificates to be able to board a ship and ply their trade. The examination for masters' mates was voluntary from 1845 and compulsory from 1850. So if you know your chap was a master or mate on board a ship after 1850, he definitely needed a certificate. Engineers, it became compulsory from 1862, and Cooks from 1908. The registers of the issues of these certificates are here, but the applications and the office copies of the certificates are at the CARD library. The applications are probably the most important thing, and typically they're not here, because when he applies for of, an exam to, to qualify for his certificate he has to list every ship he's served on up to that date. So if you only know one ship, this is an easy way of actually getting around that problem. As I say, these are all additional to the options given during this talk. This event was recorded live on the 12th of April 2012 at the National Archives in Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.